Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, we left Penny and Will Robinson watching from the safety of the Jupiter 2 as the final moments of a space experiment ticked off. An experiment that Will Robinson hoped might save them all. All personnel will leave launch pad area immediately. All personnel will leave launch pad area immediately. Launch pad area clear. Why can't we watch from outside? That rocket may be small, but there's enough hyper-energy fuel in there for a real blast. Commence final countdown. Ten, nine, I hope somebody eight, finds your message this time. Seven, One of them's bound to land six, somewhere. This better be five, it. It's your sixth try. Four, three, two, one, liftoff. Rockets fire. At 1,000 feet automatically. Is that when the pull of gravity ends? No, but every bit helps. You're learning. What do you mean, learning? I know all about gravity. Come on, let's go see what my balloon's doing to it. Space probe altitude 200 feet. Space probe altitude. 300 feet. It won't be long now. Where do you think it'll land? Shipwreck sailors don't know where their notes and bottles land when they toss them into the ocean. They just hope somebody finds them and gets the message. Space probe altitude, 700 feet. It'll fire any second now. Space probe altitude, 1,000 feet. What's holding it? Coming this way. Space probe out of control. Welcome back, folks, for episode 12 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 12th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Raft. This is one that I vaguely remembered watching, but not one that I think I watched multiple times. How about you? I have no recollection of this one whatsoever, so I was either extremely young when I saw it, or I never saw it at all, so it was all fresh to me. Oh, well, that's good. We'll have fun talking about it then. So, a few production notes before we begin with the story. The writer for this one was Peter Packer, 59. He was back for his fifth assignment after The Derelict, Welcome Stranger, The Oasis, and another script that was never produced titled Sorry Wrong Planet. Uh, I like the title of that one, but I have no idea what it was about. 
I've got a potential interview with another Lost in Space expert who's very acquainted with all the scripts that were never made, so I think that could be fun to find out what that one was about. Yeah, it sounds like it would be. By the way, I also went back and checked to see if Packer had ever written any scripts for Gilligan's Island, because I thought this one could easily have been adapted to that show. But alas, my quick online search didn't come up with any Gilligan from Peter Packer. Well, they they borrow a lot of ideas and, you know, shoehorn them into other stories. In fact, I was reading an article, well, it was a long time ago, actually, but it was about the producers of Leave it to Beaver. Mm. And they went on to produce... The Munsters, it's the same two guys. Oh, yeah? I think their name was Conley was the name of one of them, and the Mosher, I think, was the name of the other. They talked about how virtually every Munster script that uh, centered around Eddie, and there were quite a few, were just recycled Leave it to Beaver scripts. Mm. So they steal from themselves, and they borrow from other people, and I think it's a very common tendency back then. Yeah. Who's to know, right? Sure. Uh. It's a different network. They'll never notice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The director was the 56-year-old Soby Martin. He was back for his third effort on Lost in Space. Uh, You might remember he had directed The Hungry Sea and The Oasis. Martin was a favorite of Irwin Allen's, and we'll see a lot more of his work to come. This episode was filmed from the 8th through the 15th of November, 1965. That was seven days, and it aired on Wednesday night, December 1st, 1965, with no summer repeat. All the regular characters were featured in this one. We have a guest star playing the alien bush creature, or as Dr. Smith called him, the overgrown skunk cabbage, is Dawson Palmer, 29. He had just played the rubberoid in Wish Upon a Star. Interestingly, in this one, he got paid $375 a day with a two-day guarantee. So he walked away with a cool $750. Not bad pay in 1965 for wearing a monster suit, I'd say. Oh, I'd say too. That's a lot of cabbage. (laughs) That's right. All right, let's get into the story then. Act one, it's a nice tight teaser, only two and a half minutes long, and it starts with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger, and what a cliffhanger we have. It opens up on an interesting night shot of the robot standing outside the Jupiter 2 in front of a small balloon with what looks to me like an Estes rocket attached below it. Remember those old Estes rockets from when you were a kid? Oh yeah, they were the uh, predecessor, or the precursor for the uh, bottle rockets that we used to literally hurl at each other. We'd light the fuse, we'd point it at them, and wait. <laughs> Until they start to take off and just let them shoot and explode in the other kid's face. I'm surprised nobody was killed, at least that I saw. But Yeah, you'll shoot your eye out. Those bottle rocket wars were fun, though, weren't they? Oh, yeah. And it's a fun scene because the robot is counting down for a launch. By the way, if you look closely in the Blu-ray, you can see a thin wire attached to the top of that balloon, but I didn't mind it too much. The robot's announcing that all personnel are to leave the launch area immediately. You know, what could be cooler for a kid watching that series than to Mm. basically imagine launching their own rocket outside and their own actual spacecraft with their own robot with Dick Tufel providing the countdown. I mean, no wonder kids love this show. I mean, this was just like their ultimate dream. Yeah, it's a dream come true. And and the bonus is there's no adults around to to spoil the fun, right? At least for now. Yeah, Yeah, we don't even know where where, uh, John or Don or... Marine are, they're just gone at this point. Mm. So we cut back to inside the Jupiter. Will and Penny are observing the scene through the main viewport, and Penny asks, why can't they watch from outside? And Will says, well, that little rocket might look small, but there's enough hyper-energy rocket fuel in that thing for a real blast. 
Oh, wow. For all the space nerds out there, this could explain how spaceships like the Jupiter 2 can zip across the galaxy in hyperdrive because they run on hyper-energy rocket fuel. <laughs> wow. That's better than ethyl. <laughs> yeah, really? Penny says she hopes someone finds his message this time because it's his sixth try. So apparently Will's not just making a fireworks display for 4th of July. The rockets are carrying some kind of SOS signal into the cosmos. So again, this little detail about multiple rocket launches is not just small talk. We're being told this for a reason. Well, maybe this explains why the Robinsons keep getting visited by all these hostile aliens. You know, the conquering races keep finding these invitations taped to tiny little rockets from puny little humans begging for rescue who talk like children and write in crayon. They must appear as uh, easy pickings. <laughs> that's right. Maybe that's what's causing all these aliens to visit them on the planet. Those, those little messages that Will's sending out there. Well, the countdown continues down to zero, and the robot releases that mooring line. The balloon gracefully climbs up into the night sky, and Will explains that the rocket will automatically fire at a thousand feet. And he also takes time to give Penny a little lesson on the theory of gravity. He's a real chip off the old know-it-all block. Oh, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, The area's clear, so the kids do go outside to observe the balloon's ascent, and the robot keeps us advised of its altitude as it climbs. Space, probe, altitude, 300 feet, etc. And just then, Professor Robinson walks up on the scene. I don't know where Dad's been all this time, but he's coming right at the critical moment. Oh, yeah, he was probably just enjoying a, a beautiful tour of the, you know, the desert rocks. I mean, what else are you going to do on that planet? <laughs> at a 1,000 feet, though, instead of getting the rocket launching, we get an explosion. And that rocket has turned itself into a molten ball of fire heading straight back down towards Will and Penny. And the robot immediately starts to announce, warning, warning, and the kids are kind of frozen in terror. It's luck that Professor Robinson was there when he did because he rushes to grab them and falls right on top of them, acting as a shield. And that was a very cool visual sequence. I loved it. Oh yeah, that fireball looked like something out of the Ray Bradbury movie. Uh, It came from outer space. You know, Mm. that was a 3D movie and it starts off with this gargantuan uh, meteorite approaching the audience. It was beautiful. You know, it wasn't just a rock or anything. This was just like this molten magma, you know, coming down to... (laughs) pound on top of him so it was intimidating oh it was and it keeps falling it falls looks like it's literally within inches of their bodies and then it explodes it's right there we don't know what happens and so we're left in real suspense this was this was truly a cliffhanger yeah again another one of those nobody can go to the bathroom moments during the commercials the sponsors must have loved it absolutely When we return from the opening credits, we're on that freeze frame of the explosion just right above the top of Will, Penny, and John. And I thought that was clever because they just held you in a suspense for a little bit longer while they were showing the titles of who the director was and everything. And then when they're done with that, the action starts up again. And it's almost like it, the explosion just more or less evaporates in a second. And when the smoke clears, the first words we hear John se- telling the kids is, it's okay, the force field saved us again. And I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Two inches from above their backs. Oh, tell me about it. Those Cyclops could stop their ship nearly as flat as a Coke can if it only projects just two feet above the ground from from damage. I mean, come on. According to this episode anyway, I mean, you have to hit the deck for the darn thing to work. Yeah. It was weird, though, to me, because the force field let the rocket 
escape from the area to go out, but then it seemed to work sort of as a deflector to keep things going back in. But I seem to recall an earlier episode where the robot went through the effort of turning the force field off before he left the camp. So I don't know, I'm starting to think the force field is a, a little bit of a MacGuffin. It sort of fills a plot need wherever they can do it, and the consistency doesn't have to be absolute. It kind of reminds me of that uh, cartoon of Superman and Wonder Woman. They both had these instances where they were trying to hold down a rocket. These are different cartoons, but in both instances, you have like this superhuman with superhuman strength holding down a rocket. And it's sort of like, well, dude, I, you know, I don't care how strong you are. It's only your weight. You know, it's not like your feet are grabbing the dirt. You know, it's all selectively enforced, the laws of physics here. But, right. you know, same sort of thing. We're not supposed to think about it. Well, it looks cool. And that's the important thing, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. But let me ask you this question. Don't you think that something is potentially dangerous as uh, preteen kids launching a little rocket right next to the Jupiter 2 would be something that would require a little parental supervision? <laughs> well, to be fair, we have to remember that John and Maureen are the epitome of the cool 1960s parents. They let their kids do anything they want, never spanking them no matter what. They're sure kind of loosey-goosey with Judy tooling around with Don, you know? I mean, no wonder there's a population explosion back on Earth. <laughs> Does make you wonder, doesn't it? Oh, so. Yeah. Just then, everyone else who heard the commotion outside arrives to see what's going on. Of course, Dr. Smith is late to the party, and apparently he's the only one who didn't hear that explosion because he's come out to ask about when dinner is, and Maureen informs him, not for another two hours, which brings on an oh, the pain from him. Oh, yeah, he actually says, he says, uh, oh, my finely tuned hearing is only tuned to hear one thing, the dinner bell. It's almost like he's saying, you can call me Miss Priss, but never call me Miss Dinner. <laughs> Next time for what, may I ask? Didn't you hear it? Hear what? The explosion. You people are so busy making noise and getting exactly nowhere with your shipbuilding activities that I've conditioned myself to hear nothing but the dinner bell. And it is almost that time now, isn't it, dear lady? Not for another two hours, Dr. Smith. The pain. Well, then, I have time to dictate another spool or two of my book. You're writing a book? I am. About what? The Social Psychology of Galactic Castaways. Oh, very interesting, Dr. Smith. I assume that you've uh, settled on a point of view. My own, naturally. Isn't that rather a narrow view, Dr. Smith? Not a bit. I happen to have the gift of seeing myself as others see me, and vice versa. That's confusing, especially the vice versa. Is it like ESP? It is knowing who are your friends and who are your enemies. Remind me to buy that book. I might just sue him. <laughs> <laughs> if it ever gets to a publisher. <laughs> so next we cut to a scene in the engine compartment of the ship where Don is struggling with a, a major piece of equipment and he's muttering about Smith. John arrives and Don explains that they've got problems. He's been conserving fuel like a miser for their eventual launch off the planet, but it's almost all gone. And it's sort of like, how? Don makes the logical assumption that uh, Smith is to blame, because he's usually to blame for something. And he runs over to Smith's cabin and opens the door and interrupts his creative processes for a little third degree. Apparently, Don didn't get the memo about no more enhanced interrogations because he goes very aggressive and very quickly. In fact, he's got his hands around Smith's neck, and it just looks like he really wants to throttle him. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you kind of like, wow. But he, he does have these great exchanges that he, he throws in there because first he actually knocks on that little accordion door and he says, Smith, get out here now. And Smith says, really, sir? I'm in the middle of a sentence. And he says, yeah, it'll be a death sentence if you don't get out here on the double. <laughs> <laughs> and the icing on the cake is that Don is completely wrong about Smith. I mean, he had nothing to do with it whatsoever, but there's no apologies. No. And he, doesn't, he doesn't even straighten up his collar after he's crushed it with his hands. I mean, and they, they completely let Will off the hook. You know, it's sort of like, oh, okay, well, you did it. Well, in that case, nobody's mad, you know? <laughs> yeah, Don's best lines are always when he's, he's yelling at uh, Smith, for sure. And you're right. They let Will off the hook because Will sees this all going on and he comes running in and fesses up that he might be responsible for the loss of the fuel because because he was using a little bit more than he thought for his shipwrecked sailors experiment. So, yeah, Don is wrong, but he, he sure doesn't apologize. And he does make a, the interesting comment that I guess that's going to make them galactic castaways forever. Next, after some time has passed, we're back down in the Jupiter 2 lab and John is working on another experiment of his own to see if he can discover an alternate way or an alternate fuel for their propulsion system and Marine's observing and apparently it's not going well because he's very frustrated and still a little bit sore at will. Mom tries to calm him down with a few kind words and it works for a minute because he starts to give her a science quiz. If there's one thing that'll put John in a good mood it's getting to signal just how smart he is. (laughs) Now we know where Will gets it right? Oh wow yeah well John's still playing his gotcha game that he was playing in the last episode where he asks questions to entrap the person he's talking to and then he pulls the rug out from underneath them with their own answers. (laughs) This time he's getting his own wife to say that she understands what he's doing with the plasma only to have John announce, you can't because we don't understand either. (laughs) So, guys, women love this kind of treatment. If you really want to get laid, tell them how stupid they are and then announce that you're equally stupid because apparently, you know, the feminists were right. They only want equality. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Well, that is funny because it was was interesting. I noticed the scene. He's mad. He's kind of got a, a, a sour look on his face. And as soon as that question pops into his mind, his whole expression changes to a smile you know what do you know yeah. about the fourth state of matter oh let's see if there's solid well, see, there's eyes liquid, uh, uh, and plasma yes. you know, he gets the answer to his own question he loves that uh, uh, uh. <laughs> i only ask you questions i already know the answer to exactly, exactly. because i know the answer to all the questions so. well he's got an idea anyway of making a plasma engine to replace their lost fuel and that promises to give them an endless supply of energy to go wherever they want and does make me wonder why the Jupiter 2 wasn't equipped with that in the first place. Yeah, apparently he's smarter than all the engineers who work for NASA back on Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, it's a hopeful sign. And the next scene, Don and John have built a small-scale plasma engine to test out their concept. And it does fire up, and how? Because it spouts out this very powerful open flame right across the lab. But don't worry, kids, because he's put up a little deflector shield for it to aim to. So I'm not really sure that OSHA would approve of them testing it inside the confined area of the lower deck of the Jupiter 2. But it sure looks cool. They apparently didn't get the memo about NASA's spotty history with open flames and spacecrafts. The entire crew of the Apollo 1 was burned to death, being far less reckless. In fact, their ship didn't even have a cigarette lighter, Mm. let alone a plasma flamethrower. But, you know, why they didn't perform this experiment outside the craft is a little hard to explain. But, you know, 
whatever. <laughs> yeah. It was a cool shot. We like to see the flamethrower. What the heck? Yeah. Well, don't you think, though, there is a serious lack of safety procedures that we've been shown so far? <laughs> you, you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I keep wondering who recharges all the fire extinguishers, because this crew really loves to use them in practically every episode, including this one. And when they're not emptying their CO2 on yet another control panel fire or something similar, then they're literally throwing the extinguisher at the front glass viewport, trying to get the attention of Alpha Control. You remember that in the first episode? Oh, yeah. Be gad. Yeah, well, they're not done using fire extinguishers in this one yet, that's for nope. sure. Everyone's excited because John starts shouting, it works, it works. And it's apparently working well enough to convince him to try it out on the full ship. And everyone else is excited as well. And Maureen especially fesses up that she never really did like this planet. I was kind of getting a little tired of it too. I was hoping to see the Jupiter 2 get back into space, but not so fast. Hey, give Erwin a break. He paid good money for those truckloads of sand and all that those paper mache rocks and the giant wraparound panorama in the desert. He's going to get his money's worth come hell or high water. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. He's going to get a whole season worth out of it, maybe even three. So Yikes. A little later, John and Marine are enjoying a quiet moment alone outside, stargazing, and seems like we're due for another discussion about where they should go when they get airborne. Will it be Earth or Alpha Centauri? I knew right away they were going to say they were going back on their original mission, but we all know there's one castaway that has other ideas. So it's settled, kids. We're not really going anywhere after all. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, under normal circumstances, the crew of any space mission w that nearly gets killed in a serious accident usually aborts the mission and heads home, like Apollo 13 did. But in this case, they all know what Smith wants, so instead, they instinctively want to do the opposite and go to Alpha Centauri, just out of spite. At least that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Mm. Well, it's a good theory, because in case we had any doubts about what's on Smith's mind, we, we go next to a scene of Smith, who's in his cabin, listening to his tapes, his dictation tapes of the book he's writing. And it's a fun scene, because it gives us a window into the mind of Dr. Smith. And... <laughs> Strange though it may seem to the dweller on our bounteous and hospitable Earth, the galactic castaway is likely to be afflicted by a form of insanity which distorts his values and urges him to prefer the hostile and uncharted wastes of deep space to the comfort and security of Earth. In the case history of the family R, for example, a family which it has been my lot to observe scientifically at first hand, we have the absurd and utterly illogical resolve to continue on a voyage into space which can only end in even worse disasters than these they have already endured. In instances such as these, it is force alone which can help galactic castaways recover their sanity. Ah, splendid, Zachary. Splendid use of the language, as always. I love all these facial expressions he's giving while he's listening to himself. <laughs> I mean, they're pretty hysterical. He's obviously his, his own biggest fan, and he, he seals the reels 
of, of, of his tapes and these film canister, and he declares just to himself, splendid use of the language, Zachary, as always. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, he does have some great facial expressions in that one. So Next, we see Don's back down to that engine room, and he's struggling to get the plasma generator hooked up to the ship's engine. When Judy comes by to help, Oh, no, she's coming by to distract him. I guess he hasn't been paying her enough attention. So she comes by to distract him. And she starts off, though, with a compliment. She says, you're the hardest working astronaut I've ever met, which is kind of interesting because you rarely hear them use the word astronaut in this series. Yeah, that's kind of weird, really. Well, to be fair, they don't spend that much time in space. Yeah, yeah. Or in space suits, at least not with the helmets on. I mean, their space capsule is basically a glorified space Winnebago when you think about it. So it doesn't really feel like the astronauts that people were thinking about in the 1960s with those capsules and everything. That's true. Anyway, it's it's a sweet little scene between Don and Judy standing dangerously close. And it's one of the rare times we see them acting like a real couple. Although, again, they stop short of any actual mushy stuff. They don't even hold hands. But again, Don can't afford to be distracted by Judy's charms for long. He's got a lot of work to do. So he's back at it. And Don's not sure if the engines will actually be able to get them into space. They've got to do some power runs on the Jupiter 2 first. And Judy asks, when will that be? Well, maybe in the morning, he says. And Judy's just sure it's going to work fine. So there's no pressure on Don at all here. You know, I'm beginning to wonder if Don really is a flyboy. I mean, what kind of Space Force pilot doesn't take advantage of beautiful women like Judy when they literally throw themselves at him like that? I mean, Maureen must really be adding a lot of saltpeter to his food or something. It's weird. Yeah, he does seem like he's all business right there. So. Oh, yeah. Gets the old noggin jogging, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, well, they've got the whole outdoors, I guess, when they're not worried about the Cyclops or whatever. They can always take another one of those infamous strolls. <laughs> Uh. as the act nears a close we're back outside and now john's finally giving the girls smith and will their first safety briefing that we've had in this episode smith is very annoyed at any further delays for testing why can't we just lift off and be done with it we'd be back on earth before they could say john robinson john puts him in his place they're not going to earth they're going to alpha centauri and that's final. Yeah, it's final until the writer decides he wants to change it without any real reason whatsoever a few scenes later. But let's wait till we get to that. <laughs> oh, yes. There's more fun to come. So it's on to the tests of the engines. And Will asks John if they're going to be testing at full power. And he says, not enough to uh, raise the ship more than the belly of an ant or something like that. So I guess that's a relief, especially as close as they're still standing to the ship. It seems like that would be a little bit dangerous. So yeah. John joins Don inside the ship, and it's funny because they've got what looks like a battery charger with this big gauge sitting there in front of the control control panel. I mean, they want to make sure that we get the the impression you know, that you won't be able to miss this, folks. He's got a nice extra large meter that says danger all the way at the end. So Yeah, and that's how you know what's going to happen. Come hell or high water, it's going to reach the danger zone because it's got that big <laughs> danger zone written in giant letters. Yes. <laughs> Telegraph, telegraph, telegraph to audience. Here we go. Well, it's cool when they do crank it up. I love the sound effects, you know, and the whole ship starts to vibrate and we cut back to outside and we're seeing, you know, smoke sort of coming out from behind the ship and Dr. Smith is already talking about medals for the crew when they get back to Earth. And, of course, we'll have to chime in again. We're not going back to Earth, Dr. Smith. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yep. But, of course, 
we wouldn't have that meter, like you say, if there weren't a, a chance for something to go haywire, and it sure does, because suddenly that meter just pegs all the way over in the danger zone, and the sound effects really start to get crazy, and there's sparks and explosions inside the ship, and before we go to commercial and they can shut things down, it's time to break out those fire extinguishers you were talking about before. Oh, yeah, see? I mean, this is the real reason this planet has such a problem with global warming. It's all the CO2 that the Robinsons are discharging with their fire extinguishers. Enough already. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> get back from break to start act two john and don are assessing the mess that's left behind and it's not good it seems that the plasma engine just can't produce enough thrust to lift the jupiter without going unstable so it's back to the drawing board smith chimes in to taunt major west which nearly earns him a knuckle sandwich but john quickly john quickly shuts them both down and smith says well I, i'm merely trying to goad don into a more successful outcome but no one's impressed with smith's use of psychology in fact Don even says if if that's what he's recommending for galactic castaways in his book, no one will ever read it. There's some great lines in there, though. Your persistence is admirable, Major, but your competence is non-existent. How would you like a punch in the nose? I even question your ability to do that competently. <laughs> yeah, he's he's pretty mouthy there, isn't he? Yeah, I get you know it's a, it's amazing how brave he could be when he has John and Marine between him and Don. <laughs> yeah. Especially since uh, uh, Don had his hands around his neck not too long ago. But anyway. Yeah, maybe this is payback for that. He even, even after they get separated, in order to kind of explain it to Marini, he says, perhaps I was a bit subtle for the Major West's intelligence. <laughs> there was nothing subtle in what you said, Dr. Smith. Oh, man. Uh, Well, Will pipes in with an idea, of course, a little chip off the old block there. Instead of trying to lift the whole Jupiter 2, perhaps they could build a smaller ship that they could float up on a balloon like his little rocket test he was doing before. And if they could get it sufficiently high, maybe then there would be enough thrust from the plasma engine to get it into space. So, uh, Well, John seems dubious at first, but Don all of a sudden has a little eureka moment. What about the reactor chamber? Jeez, I didn't know we had one of those on the ship, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, sure it's enough. down there uh, lurking along with the uh, the space pod, yeah, and the chariot. That we're, that we're not gonna, yeah, but I mean, we got the chariot, but the space pod you're not going to see till season three, and everyone just seems to forget about it. But how can you not notice a giant reactor pod or a space pod? I mean, cheesy weezy. Well, they'd have to repurpose it. It'd have to be able to seal it up, make it airtight. But Penny says it would be like shipwreck sailors building a raft. Uh, That's where we get the title for the show, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Don's thinks the reactor chamber might be big enough for one or possibly two people. And Smith chimes in right away. You and I, Major. (laughs) Yes, two, definitely two. Uh, Don declines Smith's offer to go along, but decides uh, if anyone should go, it'll be him. He can take the risk and... You know, I'm kind of surprised they didn't uh, take up Smith on that, you know, because if they pack up him to go with West, it could be like an insurance policy. So if they both fail and die, it wouldn't be a total loss. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the way you package it. Yeah, except everywhere Smith goes, trouble seems to follow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, plus it might actually be an incentive for Don to fail. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Good point. So later we're outside with that reactor chamber, and we know that it's a 
reactor chamber. It's a large spherical contraption and it has reactor chamber conveniently stenciled right on the outside along with a radiation symbol. But did that uh, reactor chamber look familiar to you at all? Uh, only if you happen to watch Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, yeah. <laughs> like, for instance, it's got the big window in it, you know. Why would you have that with a reactor? <laughs> yeah, and those airtight <laughs> waterproof hatches on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess they figure, you know, you want to have that so that the people who are watching the reactor can burn out their retinas <laughs> you know, by staring at the critical mass inside of it. Yeah. Plus, I don't think glass holds back radiation at all so i mean lead does but not glass so kurt you're just being nitpicky now it's yes danger will robinson nitpickers alert nitpickers alert now you know the diving bell was yellow and this is obviously silver at least i think it is because it's black and white anyway yes it's it's the diving bell from voyage to the bottom of the sea and i think i would have even noticed that when i was a kid kid. But you're right. How do they get that thing out of the Jupiter 2? I I guess it's the same way they get the chariot through a garage door in the back that we never see. Well, Uh, if you're going to if you're going to play that game, then explain to me how how could you possibly lift a lead reactor with a balloon? Okay, (laughs) I mean, it's not even a a huge balloon. It's just a moderate sized balloon. I mean, there's reasons balloonists use lightweight materials like dried reeds to create their little passenger basket. I mean, they're not lifting tanks with balloons. They're (laughs) lifting tiny little baskets. So. But yeah. it's, it's the thought that counts. It is the thought that counts. And, and you know, they're, uh, somehow, I guess they don't need that reactor. I'm, I'm wondering without it how they get power. But I guess their writers are sprinkling all kinds of fairy dust. and Maybe they're going to rely on the hot air that Smith uh, supplies. That's why they're keeping him there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love this next part because Don is uh, dressed in a full decontamination suit. Oh, he's prepared. He's, he's even got Jimmy Hapgood's spore sprayer with him. And John, though, is just standing right outside there in his normal costume, his fatigues, with no protection at, at all. So I guess he's not planning on having any more kids or living, yeah. to, living past the age of 40. Uh-huh. <laughs> Don't worry, Kurt. I'm sure before they open the hatch, John's going to like duck behind a lead apron or a wall or at least move more than two or three feet away from that chamber. But no, Don opens the hatch, climbs right in. He does close the door behind him and he's in there for a minute. And John's just standing there looking seriously as Don is inside the reactor, decontaminating it, getting all that deadly radiation out of there, I suppose. And uh, Uh the girl that does the flossing for me at the dentist takes more precautions when she's taking x-rays than, than John does, you know? I mean, she leaves the room and puts on the apron and everything. It's just like, oh, no. oh wait a minute, I'm getting another reading. Oh, okay, go ahead and give it another shot. You know, it's like, oh, man. Yeah, I think we need to call corporate safety back down here for another refresher course. Cause... Oh, yeah. You know, but everyone gives Star Trek all this positive vibe because of their optimistic view of the future. But what about Lost in Space? I mean, I, I personally can't wait until a future when all they have to do is spray away radioactivity from atomic reactors and nuclear Armageddon with a simple bug sprayer. I mean, that, that's faster than you could step on the roaches, you know. It's, it's going to be great. Well, they are at least careful because uh, Don comes out of there after his uh, minute or so, and, and John sort of leans inside the chamber with his Geiger counter and tells him, oh, you better go. Go back in there and give it another dose. I, I'm still getting a slight, <laughs> a slight. Yeah, one more, of... <laughs> one more squirt of anti-radiation juice. Yeah. Uh, so this time Don just leans in and does another couple squirts, and we get another check, and it's. Yep, all clear. It's all clear. Uh-huh. So oh. go ahead, put my kid in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. 
so next we get a nice little uh, transition part. It's a montage of everyone pitching in to help with the conversion of the diving belt. I mean, the reactor chamber to that small little space raft. And yeah, a- I love these things. You know, with the music mm-hmm. and the little, little. They basically just film like five or ten, maybe fifteen seconds of somebody doing something and. They always look very, very serious when they're doing it. Yeah, and they're taking apart pieces of equipment again that I think, don't you need some of the stuff inside the Jupiter 2? But apparently not. It's a nice sequence, though, like you say. And it's optimistic with the music. And, and Dr. Smith, though, is sort of creeping around behind the rocks, observing this whole process with suspicious eyes. So uh, we know he's got another agenda that he's cooking up there. So when the space raft is finally finished, it's shown complete with a helium balloon above it and mooring lines in place. It's almost like a giant version of that little rocket that uh, Will had made earlier. And I do think that was a nice uh, effect shot. I mean, it's a clearly it's a matte painting, but it's kind of combined with a, some live action of the, of the exterior of the ship and the little people. And that's pretty cool because we rarely see the Jupiter 2 from a distance like that. Again, it seems to be like, you know, just held down by like a little pin into the ground. You know, the only ballast is the giant reactor and they're not going to throw the ballast off to send it up. They're going <laughs> to lift that reactor with it so it just seems a little contrary to common sense but i did like the kind of gave a jules verne picture seeing that antiquated balloon there alongside everything else yeah i kind of thought about it it reminded me of that scene in the wizard of oz where they have the balloon remember that in oz and and the wizard is supposedly going to take dorothy with him in the balloon back to kansas but of course he leaves without dorothy much like uh well let's don't get ahead of ourselves yeah 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 uh-huh. <laughs> but i did think it was kind of also, not a good idea to have that space raft right next to the Jupiter 2. I mean, they saw what happened when a tiny little rocket went up into the sky and things went wrong. And, uh, you know, what would happen if this larger space raft blew up at a thousand feet? I think that would be kind of a little bit of a problem. Oh, yeah, especially considering, you know, what the level of the force field is set at. You know, two feet, everyone's going to have to be lying down and that reactor is going to come and fall right on top of them. I mean, come on. Yeah. You can't. Did you like the look of that space raft? It's good, but it's still the diving bell with a few extra antennas on it. Yeah, if somebody mentioned that to Irwin, he would just rationalize. He'll never notice it was on a different network. But, you know, I mean, realistically, being on a different network did throw a lot of people off because if you're up in in a major city, yeah, you get all three networks. But out in flyover country... Most of those cities only had one network. Like, that's what we had here in Tallahassee. It was CBS, and that was it. So you didn't see any of the stuff get recycled on his other shows because you didn't see any of his other shows. You only saw what was on your station. Wow. That is something. I didn't think about that. Hmm. Next, we cut to the lower deck where John's giving Don a final pre-launch briefing. And we get to hear what the flight plan for Don's journey is. And it turns out he's, he's going to try for Earth after all. And that makes sense because it, there'd really be no sense in him going to Alpha Centauri by himself. So if he can get back to Earth, I suppose it'll be possible for him to organize a rescue mission to come back and save the Robinsons. Yeah, it even makes more sense when you consider it's his only hope of Actually getting rid of Smith, you know, getting him back to Earth, short of tossing him out the airlock, that is. Mm -hmm. True. Will uh, offers to go along with Don on the journey to keep him company, but he's told that's not going to happen. Hmm. A little more foreshadowing there, folks, I think. John tells Don that he'll probably lose radio contact 30 minutes after liftoff. And Don says that's only if he uses full thrust power, which John says is it's essential if he's to reach his first fix, Procyon. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. should give him a good bearing to Earth. So I guess if they know where Procyon is and they know how to get from Procyon to Earth, they're probably not as lost in space as we thought. But Yeah, I mean, that's confusing. It sounds like they're trying to have it both ways. Before, they had no idea where they were in the galaxy, and now they think that if they could just get up in the atmosphere far enough, they'll be able to see one of Earth's brightest stars. So it's hard to understand how they don't have enough fuel to reach escape velocity, but they do have enough fuel to go all the way across the cosmos. I mean, yeah. Again, danger, Real Robinson, nitpickers alert. I mean, oh well. <laughs> well, the little bit about losing radio contact 30 minutes after, I think that's another little plot point that's going to come back for us later. So did sure. you happen to notice, by the way, that I love, I don't know why I focus on these things, but there's like this this little map of the solar system on the wall behind John when they're briefing. I, I just couldn't stop staring at it because I know I had that same map. It was like a fold-out extra goodie that you got in a National Geographic. And I remember that so well because I think I had the exact same poster hanging on my bedroom wall when I was a kid. Oh, my God. I'm not going to call you a nerd. But <laughs> what sort of red-blooded American boy looks through National Geographic for star charts? I mean, come on. I can attest from personal experience that most normal boys back then... We only had one thing of interest in National Geographic, and that was looking for pictures of topless, primitive natives of the female variety. I mean, get a life, Lane. Come on. Well, you just spoiled my whole gig there, Kurt. You know, I had to have cover. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I always told my parents I was after the star charts. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, that works. I'm feeling relieved now. Yes, okay. Your faith in me is restored, I guess. Yeah. Well, that thing's probably a collector's item today, but I did did actually notice that thing. So John advises Don to get plenty of rest during the next 14 hours before liftoff. And then Maureen comes over to tell him how much they're going to miss him, how much they appreciate the risk he's taking and all that he's done to help save the family and that uh, he'll be in their thoughts and prayers until they're reunited. And I liked Don's subdued reaction. He's almost like a little bit uh, uh, embarrassed. He, he kind of smiles, thanks her, and then he runs off screen before he can tear up, I, su- <laughs> I suppose. Mm. The, the stoic military major. That does, though, add to the feeling that this is a dangerous mission. And I agree because so far they haven't had a lot of success with rocket launches in this episode. So we got to hope that the space raft fares better. Well, I, how do the stockbrokers say it? They say um, previous performance is no guarantee of future results. So we'll keep, keep our fingers crossed. Indeed, sir. Then before we cut upstairs, we get another exterior shot. It's a composite shot of the Jupiter with the raft. But this time it's a night shot, and I really liked that one a lot. It kind of reminded me of that Sesame Street jingle, you know, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things just doesn't belong. Because, I mean, you're looking at this futuristic spacecraft and a futuristic atomic reactor and it is attached to this 18th century balloon that can't possibly lift it. I mean, why not use that space pod and lift it up to orbit, you know? It's still languishing down there in the cargo bay until season three. (laughs) Upstairs, Dr. Smith is conferring alone with the robot, and there's some good comedy here. Smith asks the robot a perfect setup question. He says, are you familiar with that bag? I take it that you're thoroughly familiar with what is necessary to release that bag of wind out there. Thoroughly familiar with bag of wind right here. Do you mean me? Affirmative. Very funny. Do you or do you not know how to release that balloon? Affirmative. Now, what does that mean? 
Affirmative expresses agreement with the two terms of a proposition in logic. Spare me your flip remarks. Do you know how to cut loose that vehicle on command? Affirmative. Now let me see. Suppose we use the command cast off. How would that be? What are you doing? Let me go, you ninny. You're hurting me. I didn't need so vivid a demonstration, old boy. In an hour or so, you and I have an appointment to keep. Uh, it's funny. Uh, the point of that whole scene is that Dr. Smith is trying to get the robot programmed with a code word for launching the space raft, presumably with Smith aboard it. So I thought that was kind of a cute little scene. Well, and what's neat about it is it's starting to show that the robot's, you know, beginning to get a sense of humor. I mean, he's he's learning. Right. Dr. Smith, he doesn't seem that amused. I think he says no. something like, very, very funny. funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we have a nice short scene. Here we go again with Don resting in his cabin, but he just can't sleep. So Judy decides to pop in and see if she can do something about that for him. <laughs> I guess she's she's coming to remind him that he's got someone waiting on him when he gets back with that rescue mission. And they they really, really are pushing the CBS sensors to the limit here because not only is Don down to his undershirt again, but she's just dressed in her house coat. Uh, it's, yeah, it's edgy. And, 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 and it's at nighttime and everyone else is in bed. Right, right. And and then it really gets scandalous because she sits down next to him on his bunk. I don't even think Dick Van Dyke uh, and his wife were allowed to have, you know, one bed. They had to sleep on twin beds, if I recall, uh-huh. during this yeah. time frame. So, well, I guess he's learned how to remain a gentleman in these situations. After all, Dad's probably just a few steps away. But she's come in to say goodbye because it might be hard in the morning, and she gives him a parting gift. It's a little tape that she's made. Everybody's using tapes around here. And, well, uh, you know, it wasn't too clear what kind of tape that was. I mean, he refers to, she says about listening to it, but, you know, I, I was beginning to think maybe this was like a, a videotape or something. Maybe uh, she was doing to, to spite him for all those times he's been ignoring him. You know, like, oh, here's a, here's a tape of me and Jimmy Habgood just to show you how real astronauts behave. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, he's not allowed to listen to it until after he's launched. And the interesting thing is we never really see her leave Don's cabin as the scene ends. So, uh, oh, Kurt, Kurt, let your imagination run wild here, I guess. Well, you know, this also proves that they're really not worried about too much weight on that reactor. He's, he's even going to be taking a tape recorder along with him, you know. <laughs> Jeez. As Act 2 draws to a close, next we see Will walk out of the spaceship into the night air and over to the launch area. The robot is standing on sentry duty with the mooring line in his claw. He's, he's ready, man. And Will asks him if he's standing guard. Affirmative. And just then, right on cue, Dr. Smith emerges from the hatch of the space raft, and he's surprised to see Will standing there. But he's ready, right? Yes, don't cry out, boy. Yes. Will's confused. Dr. Smith, what are you doing in there? Come on in, and I'll tell you all about it. Mm. Now, kids, don't try this at home. If an older man invites you into his diving bell for a private conversation, tell him you would rather talk outside in public. Nothing (laughs) good could come out of this. (laughs) 
Uh, but not Will. Will's very trusting. He climbs aboard, and he, he sort of gives Dr. Smith a little lecture. The space raft is off limits to all personnel except Dad and Don. And how did he get past the robot? But uh, good old Dr. Smith is ever quick with a lie. Oh, you don't think I'd be in here without permission from Major West, do you? To do what? <laughs> uh, what do you suppose a man in my position would be asked to do? Mm, I don't know. Uh, maybe check on the life support system? <laughs> uh, that's it. That's it exactly. And it's all ready for, and then he says the magic word. Cast off. And yeah. the robot, right on command, releases that mooring line. You said cast off. Mm. And they start flying up into the sky. I think the hatch does conveniently close right at that moment as well. It's bye-bye, robot. And Smith quickly takes charge. And Will's like, I got to call him. And he stops him from making a call because uh, uh, the ship's set automatically returned to Earth. And it's too late to turn back now. They, all they could do is shoot us down. And I don't think they'd do that. So it's time to sit back and relax and enjoy a ride back to Earth. This is actually a great scene because it suggests that Smith has actually gotten tired of all his creative lines. So he's actually decided to let Will come up with a good story of his own by letting Will's own imagination fill in the blanks, you know, and it works beautifully. He should try to do it more often and just say, why, what do you think I'm up to? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) It's a little test. I was wondering if you'd be able to figure it out. Uh, So the last little effect shot is pretty cool, too. It shows the the space raft being pulled up into the sky by the balloon and the rockets fire and the balloon sort of detaches itself. And then the space raft, uh, the diving bell starts climbing up into the stars. And it's a, it's a nice little way to, to end the act as we go to commercial. Yeah, it's a great shot, but, you know, they might want to actually tighten the valve on the door and not just hope that it stays sh- <laughs> shut after slamming <laughs> their takeoff, especially when they reach the vacuum of space and it's going to be trying to suck all that air out. You know? Just saying. little safety tip there again. Yeah. So. When we come back from break to start Act 3, the next morning, John, Don, and the rest of the gang are examining the empty launch area, trying to piece together what's happened. And they just can't believe that Will would have gone along with Smith's scheme, regardless of how much he wanted to go on a space trip. Maureen's very worried, and she wants to know if they'll be safe. And they say that they'll have the same chance as Don, as long as nothing goes wrong. (laughs) She still wishes they'd radio back to her, let her know that uh, he's okay. And John says, uh, oh, well, they're probably out of range by now. That's a 30-minute time limit we heard about. But, of course, we know that, regardless, Dr. Smith is maintaining radio silence because nothing should interfere with his planned ride back to Earth. Yeah, what, what could possibly go wrong? They just need to make that left-hand turn at Procyon. Or is it <laughs> Procyon? It, well, it'll take them straight back to Earth. Oh, wait a minute. Will thinks everything is preset. So he might miss that turn and float aimlessly for a million years. Again, what could possibly go wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. Back on board the space raft, Dr. Smith has fallen asleep, and Will takes a chance to try to radio back to the Jupiter. But before he can make contact, Smith wakes up and switches the radio off and chastises Will for breaking radio silence. Naughty, naughty. As his commander, he warns Will that he could clap him in irons for disobedience. Will's already wishing he was back with his folks, but Smith assures him he can rejoin them after he gets back to Earth. And just at that moment, Smith's stomach starts to call, and he orders Will to fetch him a sandwich. Before he can start eating, there's a familiar blip on the scanner. Is it three bars out, Kurt? Yes, it looks exactly like the same (laughs) clip that we saw in Invaders (laughs) of the Fifth Dimension. That was the original scene in where Maureen says... 
I've never seen a blip like that before, and yet we keep seeing that same blip over and over again. You know? <laughs> yeah, it looks awfully familiar to us, that's for sure. That beeping alarm gets Smith's attention. What's that? Will's not sure at first, and Smith orders him to take evasive action, but Will says if they do that, it'll mean they'll never get back on course. And Smith's like, what do we do now? And Will's like, we? I thought you were in command. Smith says, I appoint you first officer. Keep us safe at all costs. So. Yeah, there's nothing like a long space journey and tight quarters to bring out the best sarcasm and insubordination in your crew, even when you're just kids. It won't be long now before Will is saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> uh, Will finally realizes what the blip is, and he points outside the porthole. Yes, the porthole. This is a diving bell, folks. And it's a planet. And Smith takes a look at it. Oh, no. And then he immediately declares, it's Earth. He thinks he sees several recognizable features. And his suddenly frightened demeanor has turned to overjoyed because he's finally almost home. Yeah, wasn't that porthole before at the bottom of the reactor? Because when they took off, you could see... The, the top of the robot. Now the porthole's on the side of the reactor. So this is like a floating porthole. <laughs> yes, yes. It's awfully convenient. It's always pointing right at what they need to watch. <laughs> it was weird, but uh, but it I did was. like the I did like seeing the planet, even though you know there's this confusion about which planet it is, and we're all sitting there going, it doesn't look like that to us. But no. I didn't I'm, see anything recognized. Yeah. <laughs> it looked more like the moon than the Earth to me. Exactly, to, yeah. yeah. And Will seems dubious because he goes, it can't be Earth. We, we haven't been gone long enough. And Smith's ready. He's, he's sold. Oh, who knows how long we've been asleep. And gosh, that made me think, you know, did they not even think to, they put all that equipment in there. Didn't they think to remember to install a clock? You mean they have no idea how long they've been gone? That's Yeah, that's, but, you know, be fair. I mean, who needs a clock when they've got Smith's stomach? It growls every three hours like clockwork. The man need to be fed. <laughs> Will, have me a sandwich, will you? <laughs> Good point. So Smith orders Will to land the ship and make it soft, which Will does, although Smith's got his eyes closed during the entire firing of retro rockets, and they do touch down with a little bump. But Will finally says, you can open your eyes now, Dr. Smith. We've landed. We have, yes, 30 seconds ago. Uh, Will's getting to use all of his sarcasm skills, that's for sure, in this episode. Yeah. Smith's ready to blow the hatch like Gus Grissom did, but uh, Will puts a stop to him and insists they need to test the atmosphere at first. Smith humors Will, but, you know, he's just utterly convinced that they're on Earth. But in any event, it checks out, and the air is breathable. So Will says maybe the first thing they should do is contact Alpha Control. <laughs> this was a nice fit because Dr. Smith's having none of that. What? Contact yeah. Alpha Control? <laughs> yeah, he says something about, don't you have any sense of drama? We should march in there with the totally unannounced. Uh, you know, he's, he doesn't care how many heart attacks he causes all these middle-aged people on mission control. You know, what? What are you doing here? He's hilarious at that point, I thought. Yeah, well, I was kind of wondering, maybe he maybe he doesn't really want to get in touch with Alpha Control at all. Maybe he's he's worried they figured out he was the saboteur and they're, they're going to oh, be Oh, yeah. To... Yeah, because remember, I mean, he... he put that guard through the waste disposal chute and the guard saw him on board the Jupiter 2 against orders and then somebody hit him with a karate chop and it was pretty obvious that it was Smith so you know mm. put two and two together this guy he's the reason that the the spacecraft was lost plus he disappeared now see they don't know that he's on board that ship so all they know is that he was aboard the ship before it went cuckoo and then he fled the scene so he right. definitely looks like he's 
you know, uh, one of the, the guy behind this whole thing. Mm. Well, in any event, he's not interested in contacting Alpha Control. They pop out of the space raft. And for some reason, when we get a look outside, that terrain looked awfully familiar to me. <laughs> like just where they had left, uh, maybe? The sandy yeah, we're not, terrain. <laughs> we're not going to pay for a new panorama. Do you really think they're going to do that? Come on. Smith takes in a deep breath. Oh, he's in heaven. Ah! Breathe it in, my boy. The sweet fragrance of home. Do you know where we are? In the Dakotas or Wyoming, by the look of things, Badlands country will pack a small lunch and we'll head south. Now, let's see which way would that be? That way, if this is really Earth. Trust your dear Dr. Smith, my boy. I know every inch of this country. The Continental Divide there, the Great Missouri River to the north, Pikes Peak to the south. We'll head for the nearest highway and thumb a ride to the first comfortable hotel. I'll go pack lunch. Good. Luckily, he flips on the uh, emergency locator transmitter before he rejoins Smith, because we hear this little tone. He flips a switch and there's a little tone. And they head out across their trek across the Great Plains. Next, we see the boys trudging through the scrub brush, and Will's still skeptical that they're really on Earth. They should have reached a road by now because some time has passed. They've been walking for hours and they haven't seen anything in the air, not planes, birds, or bugs. And then you know, there's this, there's something unusual, a rather large two-headed bush standing in the sand out in front of them. And Bill, I really like this. Bill Moomy has a funny look on his face and he says, I've never seen anything like that on earth before. <laughs> this is where Dr. Smith, he's unfazed by it totally. I mean, it is really weird looking. He says, oh, it's a, just a, a large, overgrown variety of skunk cabbage. <laughs> he always has the answers. Yes. Yeah, and it basically looks like a two-headed, you know, plant monster. I mean, at uh, the moment my kid saw it, I said, uh-oh, you know, it was so yes. obvious. Yeah, it's so obvious. This is something that shouldn't be there. It's totally out of place in that sandy, rocky terrain. But uh, Smith's still all confidence, and he's not going to let anything spoil his fun. He tells Will that he's probably just suffering from a little space sickness, and Will responds that it's not space sickness, it's homesickness. And then there's a touching little interchange between them, and Will asks Dr. Smith if he would sort of act as an adoptive parent to Will should this turn out not to be Earth, but that they're stuck on some other planet forever. And Smith seems touched by that whole little thing. He's a little unsure at first. And Will tells him that acting like a parent comes natural to most grown-ups. And Smith agrees, but he's still convinced they're on Earth. I thought both the actors did a nice job in this little scene. At the end, though, Smith does kind of break character because he offers to carry Will piggyback. And I thought, well, gosh, he's, has he forgotten his delicate back already? I, I always thought that fragile back thing was just to put on Smith used to avoid work. So maybe this is the first and last time we'll ever see him make a sincere offer to lift anything. But I laughed out loud when Will mentioned he would probably live alone on the planet many more years than Smith because of their age difference. And Smith just says, bully for you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when he asks... Will you take care of me like an adult? I mean, it, it also emphasizes how totally screwed they are if they are on another planet because, you know, Will's going to be depending on Smith. Yeesh. Right. 
You know, the funny thing is, the thing about Dr. Smith and his back, that was actually based on Jonathan Harris did have a bad back. And they mentioned this in the script that the piggyback ride thing was originally written that Dr. Smith was going to give Will a piggyback ride, but they changed it because they said there's no way that Jonathan's going to be able to carry Will around or Bill Moomy around on his back. So. Yeah, I remember some story where they said, you know, now I just need you to fall right here, uh, Jonathan. He goes, oh, I'm not falling at all. And they went, well, why not? I mean, it's in the script. You got to do it. Nope. If I fall down and hit my back, the entire production shut down. You can ask <laughs> Owen about it. You know, and it's just like, well, you know, okay. Uh, well, Will says uh, he doesn't need the piggyback ride. He can make it on his own. And they head off again. And then suddenly, as they leave the scene, the music goes from sunshine to darkness. And the camera pans back over to that skunk cabbage, which starts to follow our two explorers. Venus can have fly traps, and it only makes sense that pre-planus would have people traps, I guess. But yeah, yeah it, it walks. It walks and it growls. The same growl as the Cyclops, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, that skunk cabbage might have looked as familiar as the diving bell to you, and the reason for that is it's actually recycled again. It was a giant seaweed monster that sort of captured the sea view and voyaged to the bottom of the sea. And coincidentally, that episode titled Deadly Creature Below, which aired January 9th, 1966, just a few weeks after he appeared on Lost in Space, was also directed by Soby Martin. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder so. if they had the same person play it. I think they did. I'm not quite sure on that, but I, I'm, I'm guessing they probably did. But, you know, it's just like the diving bell. No one noticed because, after all, Voyage was already in color. So, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, uh, you know, they probably saved a lot of money on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea because 90% of their monsters all had the same body, the seaweed body, and they just put a different, you know, headpiece on it. Because I could have sworn I also saw the Cyclops face on one of those seaweed monsters at one time. You know, mm. I mean, it didn't have the hair, but it had. The, it was a cyclops. It was a, an underwater cyclops, basically. You know, and it uh, it looked like a bald version of the cyclops with a seaweed a body that you saw in this uh, skunk cabbage. Yeah. Well, I remember that voyage to the bottom of the sea very well because, do you remember the old Viewmasters? Yep. Did you have one of those when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely. Well, that episode with the seaweed monster was the one that they used to make the Viewmaster set. And I must, I wore that thing out because I loved the, the shots of that seaweed monster grasping the sea view in its clutches. So, oh man, I wish I had that one. Yep. Yeah. A real collector's item now. They certainly are. So, we have confirmation though that they're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. And Will still doesn't buy that idea there on Earth because they've been walking for miles and miles without seeing a soul. But Smith says they're bound to run into someone soon. There's a population explosion on Earth, remember? And so I like that bit because, again, it's like a little continuity going all the way back to the first episode. Yeah, that was a nice touch, although it, it also points out how odd it would be to breathe you know, fresh air on a dying, overpopulated planet. I mean, if anything... It might have been more realistic if he said, ah, the nostalgic stench of pollution. We're home at last. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. So anyway, they walk a bit further and they seem to have inadvertently wound up in a, a small box canyon. It's overgrown with vines and they need to backtrack. But behind them, the entrance to that canyon closes shut with a virtual wall of plants and vines and they're trapped. And they rush over to try to pry open the 
the vine walls, but it's no use. And that's not the worst of it because just before the act ends and we go to commercial, those walls open up ever so slightly to reveal that two-headed bush creature standing right there, preventing Will and Smith from escaping. And it's absolutely horrifying to Dr. Smith. Oh dear, oh dear me. You know, but one of the things about this monster, it sounds silly the way we're describing it, but you have to remember they've got that Cyclops growl going down and it's scary. The sound and the music, even with this, you know, basic plant monster, makes it scary. It is scary when that thing opens up. Oh, it is. It is. It's it's weird looking, you know, and and the sound effects and the music and everything else. They do. It's 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 frightening. Yeah. Anytime you say it's horrifying to Smith, we always think like, well, it must not be horrifying. But no, it's horrifying to the the audience too. Like I said, my kid was terrified hiding behind me. Yes, yes. It's it is it is good. And they and, do that a lot. The, the music and the sound make up for a lot of the shortcomings that they have visually. You're absolutely right. When we come back from break to start the final act, we're back at the Jupiter campsite. John is on the radio trying to make contact with Will and Smith. They're receiving a steady call signal, but no one's answering John's transmission because, of course, they're not at the space raft anymore. They're trapped in that little canyon by the bush creature. And John surmises that whatever is sending out that radio tone signal must be close by. So he tells Don to take the jetpack and search north while he and Marine will search south in the chariot. We're going to hear th- that music again, you know. We cut back to Will and Smith in the vegetable box canyon, and Will is trying to cut through the vines with his pocket knife, but he's having little success. Will's, Will's knife, in fact, has been dulled by his efforts because those vines, he says, are like Durasteel. And Smith has decided their only option is to tunnel out of the trap. And Will says, with our hands? Certainly not. Use the knife. <laughs> yeah, and he like hands it back to Will. You know, that was like his cue. Like, okay, well... Since I came up with the idea, it's your turn again. Yeah. Of course, Will's had enough of this. and Smith's been dodging work all day. So he says, you got us into this mess. You start digging. And Smith doesn't look happy, but he takes the knife back. He sort of starts to make an effort. But this is also, I think this is kind of a cute little scene because it's it's really clear now that Smith and Will are kind of, they're kind of ribbing each other back and forth. And they're starting to kind of become good buddies at this yeah. point. Well, being a friend in need has made Smith a friend indeed. (laughs) Good point. So, yes, now we cut back to the jetpack. It's the footage we've seen before, and I like it again. But this is actually, the book says, this is the last time we'll see the jetpack used in the first season. And then we also cut back to some recycled footage that we saw during Invaders, and that's John and Marine searching for Will in the chariot. And they're still, they're yelling out over the megaphone, Will, 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 Will. (laughs) Shall I recycle now? No, wait. Recycle later. Again and again. They did actually shoot a few new scenes from inside the chariot with them, but most of it's it's reused stuff. It still works. They, they stop the chariot and get outside, and, and they're heading out on foot somewhere. We don't get to see what they do because we cut back to the trap, and we'll see something all of a sudden. The vines have sprouted some kind of flowers, and he sort of figures out that the plants, they just need a little TLC, and then perhaps the vines will grow soft enough that they can cut through them. And Smith isn't interested at all. All I'm interested in is what's good for Zachary Smith. And Will says, well, you're telling me. Yeah. Then Will says something that really doesn't agree with Smith. The way those plants hemmed him in the trap, the bush creature 
nature must want them to stay there forever and take care of his beautiful vineyard. Something again that Smith definitely has no interest in. And then that growling old George Bush picks <laughs> peeks his peeks his head in to remind the boys not to try any funny business and Will says, you still think we're on Earth now? <laughs> no, he, he, he kind of freaks at that point. Yeah. Next, we cut back again to the Jupiter, and the Robinsons and Don have returned without locating Will and Smith. And they're looking at a chart, trying to narrow their search parameters. But without being able to get a fix on that signal, they might be searching for days. And Don says, if only we had some kind of a portable RDF gear, radio direction finding gear. And it seems, again, it's kind of odd they wouldn't have that. But a good old Professor Robinson says, what about the space theodolite? Gee, Don, why didn't you think of that? I guess uh, that would have stolen all the thunder from Professor Robinson. So Maybe it was kind of hidden behind the, uh, the space pod or something, you know? <laughs> uh, well, Don says he'll grab the space theodolite and take it out to the point and report if he gets a fix. So then back again at the trap, something new has developed. Those alien vines, they've suddenly sprouted berries. I guess the bush creature really does want the boys to stay and tend the garden. And Will just goes ahead and tries one of those berries. They looked a lot like grapes to me, but he says they taste like cranberries. This is coming from the same guy who wouldn't let you open up the hatch because he was afraid there was no oxygen, but he's totally willing to you know, <laughs> consume the potentially poisonous grapes. But, you know, I guess what are his options? You know, you're going to have to eat something. You're going to have to eat something, but Dr. Smith is totally unimpressed. And, and he unusually, as he's usually thinking with his stomach, we said, doesn't want to try one of those abominations. And this is when Will starts going through his five stages of grief while talking to Smith about their predicament. He says, I guess I could get used to eating these berries, and um, I might not mind staying here for a couple of weeks. If only that bushman would show himself and reveal exactly what he expects. And Smith already knows what he expects. No, oh, a lifetime of toil in these vineyards, then death. <laughs> He's always and, an optimist. Uh, Will's still thinking about his parents, though, and he, he sure wishes he could contact them. Next, we see that Don has made it to the point. He's using that space theodolite to get a fix on the radio beacon. He radios back to the ship, and John's also getting a fix. He tells Don to meet them down by the oasis, and they know that general area, but they'll need to get one more fix to triangulate. Then, back again at the trap, Smith is busy causing trouble as usual. He's busy pulling those softened vines down from the wall, which alarms Will, who thinks this will lead to trouble. Will's sure that tearing down those vines won't please the skunk cabbage. Smith sort of just goes on like a bull in a china shop. He's forcing himself to the outer edge of that vegetation that's blocking their way, when suddenly his arm becomes snagged in those vines, and we can hear the growls of that creature, which causes Smith to panic. Oh, please, Mr. Bushman, I really love my vegetables. Honest, I do. In fact, one day I hope to become a celebrity celery. (laughs) (laughs) Just have to wait. (laughs) That'll be next season. Yeah. Dr. Smith is still in a real panic, and he's struggling to free himself with Will's help. Uh, But then a walkie-talkie falls out of Smith's pocket which Will sees, and while Smith is still stuck, he start, he picks it up and he starts to make an SOS call to the Jupiter 2. And John answers and informs Will that they've located the space raft. And Will brings him up to speed and gives him directions on their location. And Smith all of a sudden is heartened too, and he says, tell him to look for the buffalo lens, the prairie. And John says he, he thinks he knows where it is. Will's about to tell him about the creature, but John just signs off before he can warn him about it. Smith wants to be free, but... 
before he does get free, Will takes a little chance to taunt Smith. <laughs> I like this little bit. When Don takes off again for Earth, he'll probably take you with him. <laughs> As his is. prisoner, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Smith quickly changes his mind about returning to Earth when he hears that threat. Mm, yes, yes. Well, suddenly, though, at that very moment, Smith's arm is free, and it's only a moment of relief because the plant walls then suddenly open up and that bush creature starts coming in and he's lumbering after them. And Smith and Will run away, but there's no escape because they're in that box canyon. They're really trapped against the rock wall. And it, we've already seen that it's a dead end. Now it's literally a dead end. And as the monster approaches, Dr. Smith does what would become one of his signature moves whenever faced with a deadly menace. He grabs Will and uses, the, <laughs> uses Will as his personal human shield. It's really kind of funny. I mean, it's it's pretty cowardly, and it's obviously done for comic relief, but uh, we're going to see that move again and again. Yeah, I'm sure Will appreciates that. Maybe he'll die laughing, you know? I mean, it's... <laughs> well, it looks like it's curtains for the two of them, but we'll have to wait until after we come back from commercial to find out what happens next. It should be ironic if they ran a lawnmower or fertilizer ads during those commercial breaks, don't you think? That would be kind of... (laughs) Ah, yes. Back from the break, we see that bush creature is closing in on Smith, cowering behind Will, and Smith is just screaming in terror. He's getting some nice extreme close-ups of that monster. And, you know, like you said, it might look a little bit silly to us now, but I do have to admit, it is kind of scary with the sound effects and the music. Fortunately, though, at the last possible moment, I mean, it's right on top of them, John and Don arrive to the rescue, and John just drops him with a single laser blast. Like, couldn't help but feel a little bit sorry for poor Bushman. He just fell, falls right over there. <laughs> oh, they, they never shy away from shooting the native wildlife, do they? I mean, it's like the only alien animal that's a good alien animal is a dead alien animal. The turtle, <laughs> the ostrich farm, the cyclops, none of them lasted very long. If I were the bloop, I'd sure be on my best behavior from here on out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Don't bite any little kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't smile either. We'll see all those missing teeth. Exactly. So he's gone and quickly forgotten. We might get to see him later, but uh, we'll leave that for now. But the scene ends like a lot of these episodes are with Professor Robinson giving us our usual wrap-up. He peeks. Well. Boy, it sure was easier getting in this place than it was getting out. Well, with trouble, that's usually the way it is. I kept telling Dr. Smith we couldn't be on Earth. But he wouldn't believe me. And I made a good landing so Don won't have any trouble going back to Earth. I don't think that Don's going back to Earth. Why not? For the same reason you didn't. Not enough power. You went into an extended orbit around the planet, but you couldn't break free of its gravity. I knew it all along. I'll bet. You just knew the ship didn't have enough power, right? Right. And uh, where were you thinking of going? Uh, Just a little pleasure hop. I thought Will was deserving of it for his brilliant suggestion. Well, gentlemen, uh, back to my book. (sighs) 
Before we take a minute to introduce the cliffhanger, Kurt, what did you think about the finale and what about the raft overall? I enjoyed it a lot. I, I had, you know, no memories of it. So it was like watching a lost episode, you know, of, of Lost in mm. Space for me. It, it kind of fizzled out at the end, you know. I, I mean, it kind of, you know, just seemed like it was a, a tacked on ending. So plot wise, it didn't necessarily have one of the better plots. But I just liked watching the characters interact with each other. I liked seeing the, you know, the different creature that they came up with, even though it was kind of silly. It was still fun to watch in the music and I mean there's all sorts of stuff that's in the background and you, that's something that you just don't see in much TV today is they are usually the same set every single every single day and of course even this planet is the same planet but you know when they're bringing in the different aliens is interesting and it's kind of scary being on a planet where you don't know what all the alien wildlife is like. I was remember reading about the Lewis and Clark exploring America and going out beyond the areas of the settlement and encountering a grizzly bear for the first time. You know, mm. nobody had ever seen those things before. And of course, they're ferocious. So you can imagine what it's like being on a planet where you don't know what's dangerous and what isn't. You know, it might just look like a little snake with a rattle on the end of it, but it can kill you. So uh, I, I thought it was uh, mysterious in that regard. And yeah, we kind of had a hint that it really wasn't Earth, obviously. I didn't know that they were back on the same planet for a long time. I thought they were on a different planet is what I thought. Uh, so I was surprised when it turned out they were still there and relieved, you know, <laughs> because... Right, right. Uh, so yeah, I enjoyed it. I liked it. It wouldn't be the top third, but it wouldn't be the bottom third either. And definitely, and I enjoyed watching it a second time. That's something that uh, most programs uh, do not offer me. I get tired of the same thing very easily, especially if it's within the same week. And I watched these two episodes practically back to back with just one day difference. And it was just as entertaining the second time. Yeah. Well, it, it was fun for me to watch it again because I don't have a lot of memories of it. I mean, I, I definitely knew, know that I had watched it before, but I didn't remember all the little elements to it. So I thought it was a good story. It had some good Dr. Smith created drama. Yeah. A lot of opportunity for the cast members other than Smith and Will to have some good parts in it. I think Penny might have been the only one that sort of got shortchanged and maybe the robot too, to a certain extent. But I thought it had some good special effects shots and the direction was pretty good. You know, one thing I did like is somebody actually got into space at least for a little while in this episode so that was kind of fun. Yeah, there were some unbelievable elements to this episode but I think they were overall pretty forgivable so I'd put this like you had I'd put it in that middle category. Would love to watch it again but I, I'll probably watch the rest of these episodes before I come back to it so great. I think we're, we're on the same page here. Before we go tonight let's talk about the cliffhanger from this episode and we'll get into this in more detail next time but in this one we see that the men John, Don, and Will and the robot are packing up the chariot. They're heading out for a couple of days on an expedition to set up a series of microwave relays. The girls, Maureen, Judy, Penny, and Smith, I mean the girls and Smith. They're uh, staying behind to hold down the fort. Before they leave, though, Smith pledges his utmost to protect the family in their absence. And Don has a great, again, he gets all these juicy lines, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do us a favor and don't do us any favors. 
This has all the makings of a disaster. There was one subtle little thing that I noticed in the background. The robot's already sitting inside the chariot. You know, when I watched it the first time, I did not pick up on this at all, but it's not just the robot costume sitting there. Bob May is actually in that because you can see him moving. He's rotating his torso as if he's following along with who's talking during this thing, and I totally missed that the first time I saw it, so I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, they didn't have to do that because, as I said, I didn't even notice it the first time, but I thought it was a nice little touch. Well, I think what they do uh, in those instances is that if he's going to be there anyway, they'll use him because he's getting paid for the day, but they're not going to use him if they can avoid using him at all that day. So mm. that time that they were shooting that longer setup where he was, it was just his kind of collapsed costume, that was because th- that was a long scene and they had several scenes and apparently, you know, they were able to just write him out of that whole day. Yeah. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. But I just thought it was kind of cool because, again, totally missed it the first time I watched it. But he's he's in there, and he's paying attention to what's going on. The chariot drives away, and Smith takes charge right away. He tells Judy that he's forgiven Don for his insults, and then he issues orders to set up a night watch. And he assigns shifts, which, of course, conveniently don't include him. Then next we cut to a scene of the chariot continuing its way on into the night. Don's starting to second-guess leaving Smith behind when John asks Will to turn the robot on. When he does flip the robot on, he immediately starts to declare, danger, danger, and everyone's sort of confused at first, and they stop the chariot to investigate, and suddenly there's this barrage of meteors that start falling, and my gosh, those meteors are falling awfully close to the chariot. Yeah, they might want to keep the robot on in general, because it doesn't really help too much to have an early warning device for danger if you only turn it on after you're already in danger, you know? Plus, it's frustrating that most of the time he doesn't tell you what the danger is. He just tells you danger, you know. (laughs) Yes, you have to phrase that in the proper question form. Yeah, exactly. Does not compute. Right. So before we see what happens, the freeze frame comes in, kids, and we're warned to stay tuned until next week to find out what's going to happen next as we go to end credits for The Raft. This looks like the next episode is going to start off with a real bang. Yeah, I like the, uh, the little miniatures and all the meteorites. That wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 13 of Lost in Space titled, One of Our Dogs is Missing. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.